And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, January 25th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. We continue our position preview series. We move on to second base, the Pretty fun position that does not have a player going in the first round, not even in the first two rounds of some drafts. So uh, one of the only positions in our game like that, catcher, of course, being the other. Uh, man, you take JT Real Muto out of the equation and go about five rounds before you see a catcher go. But lots to talk about. We had a big trade over the weekend. We will talk about Jamison Tyon as a member of the Yankees. We'll talk about the return that the Pirates got. Uh, the Red Sox did some stuff. They added Kike Hernandez and Garrett Richards and made a trade on Monday to acquire Adam Adovino from the Yankees. Plus, Brad Hand goes to Washington. So we have a new closer for the Nationals. You know, how's it going for you on this Monday? Stuff is happening. Stuff is happening. I have to say, though, uh, I have this song stuck in my head um, because, like, we're still on lockdowns here and we got this family pleasure not to go anywhere and, like, just uh, getting uh, a little stir-crazy. And I got that song by Weezer. I don't want to be an old man anymore. It's been a year or two since I was out on the floor. Shaking booty, making sweet love all the night. It's time I got back to the good life. That's what I'm feeling right now, man. It's like, uh, it's time. It's time. It is time. I want to be on a patio, you know, with some people. I guess that's like fairly possible fairly soon. We'll see. It's outdoor, right? I want to go to some concerts. I want to go to some ball games. I don't want to. I want to have an interview with the player and not be like, you know, six foot away with a boom mic or something. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah, uh, I think we're all in agreement. That would be really nice to have that hopefully later this year. Fingers crossed mm -hmm. we will get there. Uh, but I'm excited about the news that has happened over the weekend because as I said at the end of the week, I think transactions are coming in waves, but I think this is the last big wave. And I know there's some uncertainty now about the start of spring training, at least in Arizona. Uh, Maricopa County uh, sent a letter to MLB saying they don't want spring training to start on time because of the COVID situation there. It's one of the worst spots in the world right now. So, you know, whether Major League Baseball has Cactus League teams buddy up with teams in Florida, that doesn't seem like the most optimal solution, or whether those teams maybe train in or near their home ballparks wherever possible, maybe that ends up being the workaround. So I'm not going to say the sky is falling just yet. That won't be ideal for the players, I don't think. I think we saw some players really struggle. Um, at the beginning, we saw hitters were basically behind pitchers. And I think part of that was because they had just been facing the same pitchers there. And those pitchers may not have wanted to pitch them inside because they were on the same team. So, you know, I think there would that wouldn't be ideal for the game, for the quality of the game, for the players. 
um, we'd have that same feeling out session, but uh, it might still start on time that way. Um, another thing I'd like to say is that, like, the, you know, Major League Baseball will decide when spring training starts. Uh, this is just like sort of a letter that may or may not be useful uh, in the negotiations between the owners and the players, because that's what's really going to set uh, the date for spring training and for the season. We, we got some news that uh, the players rejected the proposal that basically had the universal DH and expanded playoffs in it. Um, I would assume that that had 162 games in it, but we didn't hear about that. But this is the negotiation that's happening, and, and the owners are pretending that uh, universal DH is on the same level as expanded playoffs. Um, and, and I think that's where the impasse is. I don't know. Impasse is a technical term. Actually, it's a term of art when it comes to negotiations like this impasse means something specific. So I don't want to say impasse like that, but I just mean, that's the sort of, that's the conflict right now. The owners would be like, well, we gave you expanded DH and players are like, you gave us 15 crappy jobs. and You didn't even add an extra roster spot for them. So it's not really like a real new job. It's just like you saying to some teams that maybe spend a little bit more on their DH situation. That's not really worth it. It's worth it maybe a lot to like Marcelo Zuna and Kyle Schwarber, but Schwarber got his job anyway, and Azuna's going to get his job anyway. So I don't actually think expanded DH uh, DH is worth the expanded playoffs. So that's why we're having an argument because it has to be set between the players and the, and the, and that's why we're waiting on DH. So I mean, people are like, I can't believe baseball hasn't announced if there's a DH or not. Well, baseball can't really announce that. Otherwise they would have, I think, uh, this, that's a collectively bargained situation. And so they're gonna have to argue about it some more and we're two weeks out. So I guess, uh, I guess I would say that I'm a little pessimistic now that we're going to start on time because, uh, and it has a little bit more to do with like how labor and, you know, capital negotiate in baseball than it has to do with uh, COVID numbers, I think. So, um, I don't know. You know, there's a person signing that petition uh, who is the mayor of Glendale <clears throat> who who has um, a, a hockey team uh, playing right now in front of fans. So, right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, and, and the way that they play, um, if there's no fans in the seats... It's an outdoor sport, and they they themselves congregate. They do put some people at risk that work the complex. Um, but they also showed last year that it was possible to play baseball um, and uh, not put a ton of people at risk. So, um, I don't know. It's always a minefield trying to negotiate all this, and uh, information remains... Um, Incomplete, I would say, and a lot of uh, the risk factors associated with COVID. Um, but generally, I'm upbeat, and I would say maybe a two-week delay or something um, might allow just more people to get the vaccine and um, just push the season a little bit later. I would, I would love it if this all turned out to like let's just cut two weeks out of spring training. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just yes. take two weeks away from spring training. <laughs> Yeah, no one will ever miss it. <laughs> well, if you didn't have it for all the teams, couldn't you just play a four or five game exhibition series before the season begins to go through your rotation one time to get a few reps that didn't count? I mean, instead of having partial games for the first couple of weeks where your starters play half the game or less, your pitchers only go you know, one or two innings that first start out, like skip all that. We when you get closer to four or five innings, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just run it through for like a week, put four or five games on the schedule. You know, play them in places that either have a roof or in warm weather spots, and 
get on with it. I, I think that's probably one of the possible compromises. That's one that I'm hoping that we'll see, at least for this year, because it it doesn't make sense to go to Arizona right now. I, I could I could say that, like based on what we know, but we had the proof of concept last season with the players taking precautions. We, we saw them mostly get through the season, and I think that's going to be their argument as they try and, and hash this thing out. Uh, but as far as the big trade goes, Jamison Tyon to the Yankees is pretty interesting. Uh, Pittsburgh's really tearing it down to the studs. That payroll might be 26 league minimum players by the time uh, we get to opening day. And with Tyon, he's not just a rental. He'll be on this roster, or he's at least a member of the Yankees for these next two years. They could obviously trade him before the end of that time, before he reaches free agency. Uh, but he's been through a ton, and that feels like it's underselling it in terms of the injuries. He's had cancer. Uh, he's just really had to deal with a t- lot of issues over the course of his time as a pro. When we've seen him, he's been pretty good. A 367 ERA, 125 whip now, and just 466 big league innings. Those are spread out over four seasons. Uh, we'll talk about Tyon first. How do you see him fitting in in Yankee Stadium, and, and what types of adjustments could we see that might help him kind of reach the best level we've seen from him to this point? Um, you know, he still threw his fastball 47% of the time in 2019 when he had that good slider and curveball going. I think I would just uh, totally jettison that changeup. It's never worked for me. It's never looked good. Um, and uh, perhaps uh, replace it with a few more breaking balls, push that percentage. You know, it remains to be seen how that relates to his injury and, and the stress on his elbow and what, you know, a lot of times the first thing they tell you when you're coming back from Tommy John is to put the breaking ball away and just work on fastball, fastball command, fastball mechanics, uh, and then bring that slider back in as you get closer to throwing in games. So, um, you know, is this the time to pump, punch up the, the breaking ball usage? I don't know. You know, uh, comeback rates off of TJ, a second TJ, um, are lower than off the first one. But I think you're still talking like sort of 90% um, positive outcomes uh, on on TJ's, second TJ's, especially now with um, revisions and the way that they um, the way that they do surgeries now. So I, I think he's good. And then probably also the, um, the Yankees have probably also seen uh, current throwing data from Tyon. Um, to to sort of suggest that his his spin rates and his velocities are back to normal, uh, the movement on his pitches are good. Um, I guess I one thing that I would worry about is you know we've seen the opposite of this a lot. Pitchers that used to pitch in New York going to pitch in Pittsburgh, and usually what we see is a reduction in home run rate. And so I guess I would just like to know what Tyon's home run rate will be this year. That would make um that would make I would sort of. Everything else would flow from there because I believe in his stuff. Uh, his command is pretty good, and um, his new delivery looks pretty good too. He's shortened the arm action in the back, so um, I think it was a, probably a good deal for the Yankees, who gave up a lot of uh, very, I would say, very far away or very, pretty, yeah, very far away, very far away guys with some upside. Yeah, I kind of like the group of players they got back in. Overall, just reading about them, and again, I'm not a prospect expert, but it feels like they did okay in this trade. As far as Tyon goes, if you said, would you project a career-high home run rate for him? I would. I I think he'll have a career-worst home run rate, but I think it may also come with a career-best strikeout rate. I think that's 
within the range of outcomes. He's always had pretty good control, so you're not really worried about him walking the world. I think the ratios will still be pretty good. Obviously, now he has a good bullpen protecting his leads. He has a good lineup providing run support. I think for the concerns about the home run rate, everything else being a little bit better is more than enough to offset that. I think this is a net positive for his outlook for the 2021 season. One thing that that pops up when you look at his page is he's underrated by K9 because he has such a low walk rate. It's a uh, it's a dumb little sort of statistical thing, but if you if you kind of do it per inning that way, um, if you walk a lot of guys, you can get more strikeouts per inning, right? If you if that's how you're looking at it, so he doesn't walk a lot of guys, so it looks like his walk his strikeout rate's really low. But uh, for his career, it's basically league average. Um, and I agree with you that I think there's a little bit more there because he just discovered the slider in 2019 when he went down, and so you've only got 37 innings with him throwing that revamped slider that I you know it looks pretty good to me. It looks almost Degromish. You know, like it's a 90, 89 to 91 mile an hour slider with some drop. So um, I think, yeah, I think that I think you're right about that. And I think don't look too hard at the seven canines, the, the, the canines that start with seven on his page. They're, you know, he's a, he's at least a league average strikeout. Right. Great guy. And we've seen players take that leap year five, year six of their career before, too. So it's not not unheard of to think that everything will start to fall into place. Who did you like out of the prospects? I think to me, uh, Kanan Smith um, was a very interesting player. Uh, I've rostered him before um, in some leagues. And uh, I think now that he's not in an organization that um, always has many quality options at his position. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not just a deep organization. Uh, I think he, he, I think he jumps a little bit. I think he could be, I don't know if he's a top 100 guy, but, um, you know, we saw another guy, uh, Isaiah green was traded to the Indians, um, as part of the Lindor trade. And I think I would put Kanan Smith as like, you know, somewhat close to him in terms of uh, power, speed, outfielders that could take a huge jump this year, especially if we have minor leagues, might be able to get to see some numbers. Um, those are two guys that I like outside of the 100, but I like them a lot. Yeah, I think Smith is the most interesting for keeper in Dynasty League purposes. I think there's not a forever sort of wait for him, and there's a pretty nice ceiling if he can get there. Uh, I think the player I like most for the short term is Miguel Yajure. I believe he's been a pitcher of the year in the Yankees minor league system before. Something about his profile and the fact that he's a little bit under the radar kind of reminds me of when I first stumbled into Yanni Chirinos a few years ago in the Rays system where you looked at the numbers. You're like, holy crap, this guy knows how to pitch. And he's been young for the level everywhere he's been. We saw a handful of innings, seven innings from him in the shortened season with the Yankees. But you know, you look back at what he did at high A and double A, mostly high A in 2019. Strikeout rate was solid. Walk rate was good. I did a good job keeping the ball in the park. You know, you look at the mix of pitches. We're talking about four pitches with command, and he'll only turn 23 in May. There's a clear opportunity for him in Pittsburgh. He might get knocked around a lot his first year as a starter, but I do think for keeper and dynasty purposes, he's good enough for a late flyer or for a pickup in those ultra-deep dynasty leagues where he might still be out there. 
Yeah, I could see him being undervalued uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, when he debuted, his um, his average fastball is 92.8. That's at these days actually below average velocity. Um, and I, you know, when you look at his pitch grades on Fangraphs, uh, there's no like uh, the cutter is 55.60, uh, but there's no like uh, there's no current value 60 pitch. There's no sort of like there's no 70 pitch. There's no like. 65 you know there's no standout pitch and instead what you get when you look at his uh movements and velocities on his pitches is like a pretty good four seam that has ride it's kind of straight but it has ride a changeup that has like wicked movement but not much velocity gap but this that's a good power change man eight inches more drop than his four seam um and a curveball that's 81 miles an hour and has great drop uh and this cutter that got a 60 grade uh, it's harder for me to just look at a cutter's movement and say it's good, but <laughs> uh, but uh, a cutter that got a good a good a grade, he's absolutely uh, I think undervalued by the prospect community because um, you know he's doesn't he's not sitting ninety five with a you know devastating slider that you can point to. So you know pitchers like this, if it turns out that the command is uh, really on the sort of fifty to sixty level as Fangraphs has it, um, his walk rates in the minors were great. If you're talking about a guy with command and a lot of pitches, I'm starting to feel really feel that kind of package. Yeah, I'd already stashed him away in my 20-team dynasty league. Even when he was in the Yankees system, my concern was that he's going to break in. He's going to be a multi-inning reliever. He's going to go up and down for a few years. He's never going to get a chance to really take a spot and run with it. That concern is gone. So if you believe in this type of profile, opportunity is knocking for Miguel Yajure. It's really interesting to have yeah, that power changeup is a nice weapon to have. And look, I think I think a logical follow-up question here is, is there a certain age where you feel like a pitcher is a lot less likely to add velocity? And if so, has Yajure reached it? My assumption is absolutely not. If he hasn't turned 23 yet, then there's still some time for him to pick up a tick or two on that fastball. And if that happens, if he's 93-94, or even touching 95 as a starter with four pitches in command, that's a legitimate sleeper. Yeah, and I, and I, uh, I disrespect uh, most, of the, uh, most of the players uh, ahead of him on the depth chart. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I hinted at this, but at what point did the Pirates just say, you know, we should probably just go ahead and trade Mitch Keller and Cabrian Hayes too and just play for five years from now? I, I know you're going to have these guys for a while, but... I think you, if you, you trade Cabrian Hayes and you and you say to your fan base, we, we don't think we can be a winning team in the next six years, you should just lose your job then. I mean, they've <laughs> been a pretty bad team for almost 30 years. So, and I'm really not exaggerating. Unfortunate playoff exits in the last seven or eight years, really. Uh-huh. But they're a mess right now. I, I, I like what they're doing. They're trying to do it right. I think they do have some pretty interesting young players. They're not five or six years away. They're more like three or four years away. So if you can develop Keller into... He's probably not an ace, but if you can get him to be a really good three or even just a passable sort of two, that's something. If Hayes is your franchise third baseman, that's actually something. Maybe they get a bounce back year from Brian Reynolds. That could be something. They're going to be bad in 2021. There's there's no way there's no way to spin it. They might be the worst team in the big leagues. Who's their center fielder for you? 
I think they will play Brian Reynolds out there. And I think the Rotowire depth chart has it right. They've got Jared Oliva in left and Polanco in right. I think that's the default for now. So something like Oliva and Evans in left. And by putting Reynolds in center, your backup situation is better everywhere. Uh, because like the center eligible, like the Fangrass has it Alfred. Anthony Alfred is as the first one, but uh, I just don't know that Alfred is a major league player, dude. I think he could be a late bloomer, though. He was playing college football. I mean, I, I just think that's that leaves a little room. I think he's the type of player that if you're the Pirates, you should have guys like Anthony Alfred in the organization yeah. trying to see if you catch lightning in a bottle because the payoff could be well worth it. And if you even if you develop a part-time player, that's something that gets you there in the short term. But uh, I think he's interesting enough. Right-handed defender and center. Those are actually uh, useful. I also asked, though, because Cole Tucker is bouncing around, and I don't know where to put him. Or maybe he, maybe you just don't also know. Maybe we, maybe it's not that important. I think he's the kind of player that if you're in a 20-team dynasty league, he's absolutely a pick-up-by-low type because he might just play a lot. In NL-only leagues, like I'm going to think about him for NL labor. I think he's versatile enough where... Maybe he gets some time in the middle infield. Maybe he gets some time in the outfield. Turns Center. into a, a good utility guy. I think the problem I'm starting to have with Cole Tucker, though, when you look back at the scouting grades, 35 hit tool, 50 future, but a 35 hit tool means he needs to play to get better, and it might take him a little time. And so far, we've seen a 25-plus percent K rate in parts of two seasons. You know, We haven't seen uh, speed the way we thought we might have seen coming out of the minors with some of those 30-plus steal seasons that he had. so Yeah, and it's paired with 35-40 power on the scouting scale, which uh, he's had maybe one year where he kind of sniffed league average power his last year at AAA. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe run Draft and hold speed gambit maybe, like real, real late, like in the 35th, 40th round, something like that. He, he's going to play, and he's probably going to be multi-position eligible Sooner rather than later, so could be an interesting uh, that best ball has some appeal. Best ball guy because he you could back up in a lot of places in a couple of weeks of the year or just sort of play for you because he that was the year that you know somebody was nicked up and he played all week. Agreed. Well, lots more pirates and, and Yankees talk than I had expected going into the weekend, but happy to have it with that big trade. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, Brad Hand has a new team. He goes to Washington. So we've filled one of the unsettled closer situations. You've talked a lot about some issues with Hand 
specifically his velocity tailing off. I don't think he's necessarily a top 10 closer based on skills at this point in his career. I think that'd be a reach, but he could end up finishing as a top 10 closer based on opportunities because I think he's got a little bit of separation over the pack. We were talking before we started recording, Tanner Rainey's a really interesting bullpen arm in Washington. He's the biggest threat to hand if hand really goes through a prolonged stretch of struggles. But I would say job security for Brad Hand is pretty high to begin 2021, given the needs in the back of that Washington bullpen. Yeah, his velocity drop-off has been pretty precipitous, and people explain to me that you know his ERA and whip are fine. Uh, but I would point to the fact that last year he had the lowest swing strike rate of his career, the lowest ground ball rate of his career. Um, I see some fades happening that are tied to that. Also, relievers generally are tied very strongly to their uh, fastball velocity. And the one mitigating factor would be if you had three or four or five pitches, somebody like, you know, like Joaquin Soria, I think, has done a really good job, uh, you know, being an older pitcher with less velocity just because he has like five pitches, you know, um, kind of like a secret starter, basically. And uh, so with Hand, I do think that uh, he will have the worst home run rate of his career this year. And if, you know, he could survive all year with the worst home run rate of his career, still be better than anybody else in that bullpen and end up with a sort of mid to high threes ERA and 20 to 25 saves and be absolutely a great pick. And I could be wrong again. Uh, But I also see a fair amount of risk that like those homers come at the same time. (laughs) And if those Mm -hmm. homers come at the same time and Tanner Rainey's out here not walking everybody, uh, Tanner Rainey is the guy who's going to be there next year and the year after that, maybe. So, you know, you could just go with the young guy who seems to be establishing himself and Brad Hand is on a one-year deal. So, you know, who cares? You could, you know, you still need Hand in the seventh and eighth then in that situation. So, um... I that's why I won't put him in the top 10. That's why I may not have a lot of shares of Brad Hand. Um, and um, I don't want to be just like a fixated to like velocity. What's his velocity? What's his velocity? But like it, it tells you something about him. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I, I think he's probably going to close in on, I want to say maybe like pick 100 at the highest just because of the lack of job security. We don't have to go into it again. We've talked a lot about closers already, and we're going to have a closer-specific episode, but I think people might treat him like a top-10 closer, and if that's happening, I'm going to have a really tough decision to make. In leagues where I can't make trades, like NFBC leagues, I might have, have to make to that sacrifice. Safe. Yeah, yeah, maybe take that risk, even though I, I agree with what you're seeing in the downside, uh, but the possible payoff is 30-plus saves with a 375 ERA and a 115 whip, and I can live with that around pick 100 this year if the saves actually come through from Brad Hand. Uh, Nice to see the Red Sox getting in on some things over the weekend, by the way, too. Uh, Kike Hernandez and Garrett Richards both go there before Adam Adovino was acquired in a trade with the Yankees on Monday. Rare to see those two teams hook up on a trade, of course. Uh, With Kike, they've got a hole at second base for now. I think once Jeter Downs is ready to play in the big leagues, that spot will belong to him, and Kike Hernandez might return to his familiar super sub role, Uh, but they can cross that bridge when they come to it, right? And maybe by that time, J.D. Martinez is playing somewhere else, or they've done something else to the roster, and it's not really going to be an issue. So I'm not crazy 
about Kike as far as like mixed leagues. I think he's just fine as a filler. He's the kind of guy you can pick up when you've got injuries, throw him in your lineup for a week, and when you get healthy or when someone better comes along, you go ahead and get that upgrade that way. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to pick at there. Uh, but Garrett Richards is kind of interesting. And we had a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Kevin wrote in, and he wrote, I knew that Garrett Richards has a high spin curveball, and in my head I translated this to Garrett Richards has a very good curveball. So I was surprised to see that, one, he had decreased his curveball usage down to 7.5% last season per baseball savant, and two, he had pretty bad pitch values on his curveball via fan graphs in 2020. I also noticed that in the pitch arsenal graphs on Savant, a lot of his curveballs are concentrated up and in to righties, and I'm no expert, but that seemed like an odd placement. It looks like in 2018 and earlier, he was concentrating it low in the zone much more, and after spot-checking with some guys with good curveball results in 2020, like Bieber, Wainwright, and Marquez, it seems like low in the zone is their most common placement, too. Eno, you mentioned Richards as a good stuff, bad command guy before the season last year, and that seems borne out by the stuff and command reports. So my question is this, is all this just a symptom of bad curveball command? And if that's the case, how likely is it that he can fix it? Really good specific question from Kevin, which almost just drives at this bigger question. Are the Red Sox right to throw a dart at Garrett Richards? They obviously need starters to chew up innings. And if he's good, he can be pretty good. But what do you think about the curveball situation in particular? Yeah, uh, Richards has like top 75 stuff uh, among starters. Um, and uh, uh, he has a 87 command plus. So generally, I think uh, when somebody profiles like that, they just are a high variance pitcher. Um, and I guess another way to answer that is uh, I wouldn't necessarily look too hard at pitch type values because uh, there's noise because... Uh, you know, someone's pitch type values could go down because their fastball velocity went down. Everything's tied to the fastball velocity. Um, they could get down because he had worse defenders. It could go down in 2020 just because uh, a couple of curveballs got hit and he only threw 20 curveballs for the year or whatever, you know? Um, I mean, it's a pretty small sample. But I would say that if you look at his uh, pitch type values for the curveball, you see that he led the league in 2017 um, you know, with a, you know, he had league leading type excellent outcomes on the curveball. Um, and he had a great season in 2018 with it. And then in 2019 and 2020, the curveball just not been useful for him. For him. And I, I think that's just what happens when you, when you struggle to place it. If he's putting it high and tight, he's probably trying to get some called strikes, but obviously he didn't get a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, the pitch didn't do much good for him. I was surprised to find out in Ethan Moore's stuff metric that he just gave me that the curveball actually rated as below average. Because when I look at it, I see an 80 mile an hour curveball uh, with like 12 inches of drop. It looks like it, um, it 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 checks the right boxes, but there must be something about it um, that uh, that isn't great even on the stuff level. So. The, the, the reason that I like uh, Garrett Richards is the fastball and the slider. Um, I think the curveball is good enough that he doesn't necessarily need the changeup, but he's not a great three through three true outcome guy. So, you know, with the command um, and with the curveball only being average at best, um, I would say that he's kind of like your four and five inning, um, kind of like a low end Tyler Glass now. And that can be useful. 
Um, I have some shares. I in my twenty team league, he right now is my last uh, my last pitcher, and I'm deciding whether or not to in my twenty team dynasty whether or not to deal him for a pick or uh, hold on to him as my final pitcher. So um, I think um, I, I'm always going to be like, for example, uh, let's me. Are you are you looking at his page right now? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was gonna—I was gonna give you an over/under on career ERA. Are you looking at that number right now? No, I'm gonna say his career ERA is like 3.65. Well, dang, it's 3.62. So yeah, yeah. I would say that most pitcher. people would think that it's that it's over that. But he throws wicked hard. He has a really good slider. I mean, I think he's a lot like Tyler Glass now, actually. Well, I think the the point of the career we've reached for Garrett Richards too is if it just doesn't work for him as a starter anymore, he could be filthy as a reliever. Like I think he's kind of hitting that wall where if the arm injuries are still problematic, you know, if the command's still a problem, there's be a other there are other ways to make him really good. And that could that could be a path that Boston takes if if they're not looking like a contender in June or July, they could follow the Drew Pomeranz model with the Giants a couple of years ago, shift him to the pen oh, wow, this guy's electric in the pen, flip him, get a prospect back, and then Garrett Richards goes out next winter and gets a multi-year deal as one of the more interesting relievers out there. Like That could very well happen if it doesn't work for him as a starter, and it, it could work for him as a starter. So, And he has that reliever-level command. That 87 command plus is like, yeah, he would fit in with the relievers. Yeah, so I, I like the signing. I think there's a few ways it can work. I think it makes sense for the team. I don't know why Boston's being so stingy. Can't answer that question at all, but... Uh, I mean, they're up to they're nearly up to two hundred million. So, I mean, yeah, you could say go over the go over the lux tax, but they're still spending some money. It's asking too much. On some level, it's asking too much. They can't it's asking way the too lux much. Tax, my God, what would the that. minority owners say? Oh, you, you got to answer to them. Uh, but really appreciate the email from Kevin. Included some kind words about the show. It's always nice to get those along the way as well. Uh, last player for the Red Sox that they acquired, Adam Adovino. Kind of similar to Matt Barnes in a few ways, but I think Adovino has shown a better ceiling and more high-quality seasons than Matt Barnes. So in my mind, I think Adam Adovino makes some sense to close for this Boston team and compared to what you're going to have to pay to get Brad Hand in your drafts, Adovino's probably going to be treated like your third closer, and he may end up exceeding expectations at that price. Yeah, um, he doesn't have the same velo drop as Hand, uh, but his peripherals uh, took a bit of a drop. And he has, I mean, he's gone down from, you know, a peak of 95.7 in 2015 to 93.5 last year. But he's still, uh, you know, he's been at 93.5 to 94 for, you know, the last five years, basically. So this is who he is. He basically just has uh, a little bit of issue with command, and if batters come to the plate and just decide they don't want to swing, um, then he has some trouble. That's why he's developed a cutter in recent years to try and have something he can throw in the in the strike zone and get some called strikes on. Uh, but you know that command makes him inherently risky, um, and also maybe not a great fit for the ninth inning. And that might be some of the problem with Matt Barnes too. I don't know if people know this, but like swing rates are a little bit variable from inning to inning. Um, and I looked, and the ninth inning um, has, I think, the lowest swing rates out of the entire game. And so, you know, I don't necessarily believe that the ninth inning is so much more stressful than the other innings. But if they if batters swing less in the ninth inning, and then you've got Barnes and you've got Adovino, 
guys who walk a few a fair amount of people so that the batters are reinforced to not swing it might be a bad sort of connection between the pitcher's skills and the the skills that are needed for the situation at hand um and uh, to wit <laughs> to wit uh to wit you just uh, Matt, that one Matt Barnes's uh career right i mean uh mm-hmm. he doesn't uh he, they, they, it almost seems like they don't trust him to close. Yeah, I get that feeling too. I, I think there's a little bit of a Hector Neris sort of vibe where yeah. we've tried this. The peripherals are pretty good. It's not ideal. Let's try you in the seventh and eighth again and try something else in the ninth. I, I think that's in the range of reasonable outcomes in Boston. Maybe they're not done, but I think you're right to point out the amount of payroll they have allocated this far. It actually is significant. They're probably not going to spend more. So with that, one of those two guys is likely to close. I prefer Adovino so long as he's cheaper. And even if he becomes more expensive than Barnes, I still think there's room for some profit, uh, depending on what that price ends up being. So I'm definitely intrigued, to uh, put it mildly. Let's get to our second base preview. I, I thought that's why you were saying to wit. You were saying, hey, we're 35 minutes in. And we haven't even started our position preview yet. Let's talk Not about Wade Merrickfield, damn it. <laughs> Blame the suddenly red-hot stove and um, you know Maricopa County for the first 35 minutes of content of today's pod. As I mentioned up top, second base, a little weird. One of the few positions that does not have a first rounder based on ADP. Technically, they don't have a second rounder either. Uh, if you look at NFPC ADP since January 1st, DJ LeMayhew, just barely misses the cut. He's right there at the 2-3 turn in a 15-team league. Ozzy Albee's not far behind. And to Wit Whit Merrifield right there at pick 38. So three inside the top 40, all sort of clustered together. And when I think about second base, I go back to uh, the piece that Owen Poindexter wrote for The Athletic last year where he was breaking down uh, where player values were at each position, the shape of each position plotted out. And second base was one of those positions where if you didn't get somebody early, you weren't necessarily getting quality later on. And you could kind of argue whether or not there were two or three useful tiers before things got really bad. But there was definitely a top-heavy, good cluster early that you really wanted to go after if you didn't want to have a weakness there. Do you think the market has properly ID'd three players that do stand out over the pack with LeMahieu, Albies, and Merrifield being 20-plus picks ahead of Kevin Biggio, Keston Hira, and Brandon Lau, three guys that have all shown us something but have also shown a few warts along the way. No, 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 um, no. I think they've got it all wrong. Um, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't see Whit Merrifield as a top three second baseman. I think the, the, the wheels are going and the, he, he's, he's wheels dependent. He's stolen bases dependent. I, uh, I, I don't even know that I, I think that DJ LeMay should be here. I think the choices at second base are poopy, poopier, and poopiest. Mm. I haven't read that children's book. Is that a? <laughs> is that, is that yes. some new children's Raising book that children I'm not aware of? Is a lot about poop. Um, no, uh, I like I, I like if you do by the Bat X auction calculator, fifteen team. Um, uh, 15 team uh, with uh, MICI sort of situation, uh, could tell Marte is number one. 
And Cattell Marte, you can tell Marte is actually one of about 10 uh, players that there's the biggest disagreement between Steamer and the Bad X. But that does say to me that uh, Marte is doing some good things under the hood, stat cast wise, um, that, uh, that, that should put him near the top. So, I mean, to me, it's Marte, uh, Albies, and then I think uh, actually Hura. Um, I am more worried, I think, about Altuve's health and uh, general wealth in terms of fantasy sense um, that I don't think I want to pick a person his age with his knees that high. I think he's going too high for that. So to me, it's Marte, Albies, and Hira. And the only one of those in the few drafts I've done so far that I've taken as a top second baseman has been Ozzy Albies. I, I don't think he's a perfect pick, and I'm actually... You know, giving the position a little bit of a boost in my own head in order to pick him there. I think um, I took to I took him at sort of forty eight. I think in this best ball draft I'm in right now, and um, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm a little bit terrified of the position. And I think no matter what you do, if you give money to the, the you know to their auction number, change that, or if you reach a couple picks or what it is even if you decide you don't want to reach at all and you're only going to take him at the numbers that you've got, I think you need to plan what your second base solution is. You know, is it to get one of those top three? Um, if not, who do you identify as being a top 10 guy that might be there later? And if you go really cheap, who are like the two or three cheap guys that, uh, that interest you? And I think that uh, studying second base before your draft is is a must, honestly. You know, Albies had, I believe, a wrist injury last season, and I think that played a pretty significant role in a step back in terms of his average exit velocity. Uh, only slugged 466, so a little bit of a pullback in that category after he slugged 500 in 2019. But for a guy who's age 20 through age 23, in his first four seasons, he's shown more power than expected. Ozzy Albies has slugged at least 450 in every one of his big league seasons, including one in which he played with a wrist injury. So I think the power is actually a little more stable than people realize with him. The speed shouldn't go away at this stage of his career. There's still the possibility that he gets better. You know, I think he he owns a pretty nice track record for a guy this young. There's really no one to push him for playing time, so there's obviously no concern there. This is why he's an early-round guy. But I do see some pretty intense arguments about Albies uh, at the 2-3 turn or even just in the middle uh, of round three in, in a lot of situations. I like him there just based on how this position goes, but also because I think the projections are largely dead on. I think he's good in batting average, above average in power, good in stolen bases, and he's going to be great in terms of runs. And I keep coming back to it. I tweeted this this weekend. I think I'm more dialed into playing time and counting stats than I've ever been before. I still love stat cast. I love players that hit the ball hard. I love players that have great sprint speeds. But if everybody's valuing those specific traits more than they should there will be obvious opportunities elsewhere. That doesn't necessarily apply to Albies as well as it applies to some guys we'll talk about a bit later. And I think it drives home the point with Mike Moustakis. I think you said he's pretty high in the Bat-X projections. Even in the famous original Bat projections, he's third among second basemen. 
we liked him going into Cincinnati from a home runs perspective going into 2020. Obviously, he had some health issues as well, and it was a shortened season, so we didn't get to see that much of it. Not worried about him losing playing time to anybody. He's in year two of a long-term deal. They're not really going out and adding a lot to their lineup. So I think Moustakis kind of jumps off the page to me as someone where if I don't get Albies early, I think I like DJ LeMahieu maybe a little more than you do. If I don't get one of those guys early, Moustakis is probably my primary target from that next group, sort of falling past the Heras, the Biggios, and the Brandon Laos. I like those guys, but I think we're paying a little too much of a premium for guys that have pretty clear flaws. You know, you're right to pay attention to playing time, and that's maybe the number one cause for dispute between the different projection systems. Number two is probably how much stat cast is included in the projections. That's what separates the bad X from steamer and from most of the projections. That's why um, I sort of talk about the discrepancy between those two, but the playing time discrepancy is the number one source uh, actually of differences in projections. And uh, it's really interesting because if you go from site to site, like if you use the auction calculator and you play a plug in steamer at fan graphs, you're using the depth charts there, which are set by a human being. Um, if you use rotor wire projections, uh, those are depth charts set by different human beings. So, you can see that there's the source of the error. It's the human beings. Um, and so you are a human being. <laughs> um, and so, yes, look at the plate appearances that are projected in every projection. And uh, for example, uh, I did just take Max Muncy in this best ball, but I took him in, I think, something like the 10th round. Uh, even though his projection is almost equal to Mike Moustakis. I would point out, though, that Mike Moustakis is projected for 664 plate appearances. And so is Max Muncy. I don't see Max Muncy getting to 674. I could see how a current depth chart would say that Max Muncy has to play a lot uh, because of the way that the Dodgers look right now. But there's no way that this is the Dodgers team when we go into the season. You know, <laughs> Right now they have Chris Taylor projected for 670 plate appearances. I think they're going to sign an infielder. <laughs> you know, I think they're going to sign a third baseman. Um, and that'll take a huge chunk of plate appearances away from Muncie, uh, Taylor, maybe even Pollock, you know, as that sort of cascade happens. So, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think Moustakis is, you know, there's a health question uh, sometimes with him. He did not come into camp in good shape. Uh, but that was a COVID year situation thing, too. You know, it was kind of hard to uh, start and restart and stop and everything. So hopefully if we have a little bit more of a, you know, established uh, spring training date set soon, um, you know, he'll come to camp in good shape and, and, and hit that 650 plate appearances that you need from him. But it, it makes a really big deal on the edges when you're talking about, you know, who's going to play, how much, how much is Dylan Moore going to play? Scott Kingery, Andres Jimenez, like, you know, Knowing how much they'll play uh, is almost as valuable as knowing how good they are. I want to ask you about that second cluster just for a minute. Biggio, Hira, Lau. Biggio goes the earliest, ADP 57 since January 1st. Hira at 67, Lau at 71. If you're going to take a chance on one of those three, is there one that you like better than the others? Hira. Hira. Pretty easily Hira. Um, Biggio... And Hira have the the power and the speed that makes them interesting, and so I think their ceilings might be similar. I just think that I 
is it the the hit tool? I think I hit I trust Keston Hero's hit tool better. I know he's had the the bigger strikeout rate more recently, but I'm sort of trying to look at their careers as a whole. Um, right. So I, I well, I, yeah, I think his his ceiling is a little bit higher. The problem I have is that Keston Hira can hit the ball to all fields with some power. I feel like Kevin Biggio is pulling everything. He is just a mm-hmm. dead pull hitter, and that really limits what you can do in the batting average category. Like Hira might just whiff his way to a low batting average. That's possible. And because Biggio walks so much, he could still have a prominent spot in the lineup, even with his approach. You know, He could be the two-hitter for the Jays with their new lineup. That's within the range of possibilities. But I do think if you hit the ball really hard, that gives you a little more buffer with the K rate. And if you also spray the ball to all fields, that gives you more buffer with the K rate because your balls in play are much more likely to end up becoming hits than if you just pull everything and hit a million fly balls, which really truly is Kevin Biggio's typical distribution to batted balls. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the bottom uh, of the oppo uh, category, um, you got Brandon Crawford and Nick Ahmed, Cole Calhoun, Victor Robles, George Springer, uh, Kyle Tucker, Miguel Sano, Suarez, Candelario, um, and Biggio is in there eventually. Um, I think, you know, Matt Olson. Um, Kyle Schwarber. Yes, there's a relationship between, um, especially for left-handed hitters and a high pull rate or a low oppo rate um, and a low batting average. Just so, it's shit. an interesting group. <laughs> there's there's a lot of ways it can go right for any one of those guys, but I, I guess like you, I'd be most likely to take Hira in that section. I'm more likely to either go earlier or to go to one of these later guys that we've been talking about. Uh, the Cattell Marte bounce back makes a lot of sense in my mind. I'm not pushing back against that. Pick 83, pretty reasonable range. That'd be about middle of round six in a 15-teamer. I think you can justify that pretty easily. Jeff McNeil is a tough player, though. Right there with Cattell Marte. Dude, this position plenty is, of batting average. This position is wild, dude. It's, it's a wild. messed up position. It's and a lot wild. of these guys can play multiple spots, too. Yeah. The Bad X says that Keston Hira is worth $19 and Kevin Biggio 7 It says that Cattell Marte is number one at $23. It says it goes Marte, Albies, Altuve, Hira, Segura, Merrifield, Moustakis, Muncy. And and that I haven't even said DJ LeMayhew's name yet. It says that LeMayhew and McNeil are the same guy at $14. It, uh, it, you know... It says that Brandon Lau is worth less than those guys. So, uh, 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 and then if you if you did this by steamer, it would be a completely different order. Um, so, I really do think that you you gotta you gotta pick your favorites. Like my ranking is probably something like um, Albie's big gap. Honestly, I think Albie's is alone. Albie's big mm. gap. And then I'm starting to do the Hura, Marte, um, uh, I guess. I don't know if I put Biggio that high. Hura, but Hura, Marte, um, uh, LeMayhew, I think I'd push him a little harder than this projection here. 
and um, th- those are the fine the fine second group, and then and then you get to the kind of the question mark third group, which is I think the Mustakis Lao Vigio group. I'm wondering how much of an issue we should take with the projections coming out nearly identical for LeMahieu and Jeff McNeil because DJ LeMahieu hits the ball a lot harder. There's yeah. a big difference in how those guys hit the ball. Uh, we know DJ LeMahieu is a great all-fields hitter. That's something he's had for a long time. A lot of the power comes to the opposite field. I wonder if that's going to trick people in some way. People are going to see those projections, see McNeil and say, you know, we've seen power from McNeil before, so I'm going to pass on LeMahieu and take McNeil four rounds later, and everything's going to be fine. And I don't think McNeil's going to sink you at the price necessarily, but he could but hit He's not DJ homers. LeMahieu. He's not DJ LeMahieu, even though those projections are similar. That's That's just one of those weird quirks that... We'll probably have Derek Cardi on as a guest at some point. Yeah, it has something to do with he's going to steal eight bases in the bad X, but he he went 0 for 2 last year. And this isn't about Derek's system specifically. I just I think it's the kind of thing that any projection system can do. It can make us think two players are more similar yeah. than they actually are. And yeah. then we make mistakes in our process because we see identical slash lines and similar counting stats and similar power and speed numbers and go, oh, well... Eat this, not that, right? Remember that yeah, book yeah, yeah, from yeah, yeah. ten years ago? <laughs> it's like, don't eat the big bacon classic. Eat the little bacon classic. Eat Jeff like, McNeil. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no. Um, you know one thing. One thing that's weird is that um, you know he's twenty eight already. Um, that uh, he's he's like the late bloomer. Was into golf for a little bit, um, and you know wasn't supposed to be this good because of his age at level and all that stuff. Uh, but there's another thing that's really weird about McNeil is that he is a primo um, hit tool guy who does not have a good idea at the plate. Right. You know like he's I mean? gifted. Like, he's like very gifted and can yeah. hit everything, but that means he hits balls that he probably shouldn't because he could do more damage if he were better at, kind of pitch selection right like he reminds me of marco scudero hmm marco scudero marco scudero yes scudero had one outlier power season didn't he yeah no but i think that's that's meaningful i'm not sure what um i'm not even sure that uh, mcneil will hit 19 Ah, scudero never had a power season quite like mcneil's though okay and you know 2019 but also there was a different different, because of the ball time yeah different time different time you know, that approaches. 12 home run season from Scooter on 2009 could have been a 24 home run season in 2015. <laughs> could have been. Yeah, but, could have been. Uh, okay, but, but I think still kind of similar, just a little bit more power. Um, not that many stolen bases, uh, good batting averages, not actually that great of a, of a Roto uh, player. Um, so I McNeil is okay, but... McNeil to me is an okay option, whereas DJ LeMayhew is more like a top five option. And it is kind of weird to me that they're right next to each other. I think McNeil has a more specific function. You could obviously draft DJ LeMayhew and then add a player like Joey Gallo or Miguel Sano or your low, low average, big, big power guy. If you're interested in those players, you should also be interested in players like Jeff McNeil to kind of Frankenstein those two players together. 
offset that batting average over a large volume of playing time. And, I mean, McNeil has the added benefit of being eligible at three positions. You can move him around a little bit, too. So uh, I don't think you're going to hurt yourself drafting him around pick 85. I think it's fine. He's, he's not a must-have. He's not a must-avoid. He's a use in a specific sort of way. Get other players to justify that decision to sort of maximize the value that he brings with so much of that McNeil being tied and up into the batting average. McNeil-Muncy <laughs> yeah, combination. Back-to-back picks, he could. A lot of versatility, <laughs> different skills in those two players. I think we might differ a little bit on Jose Altuve. I think you're right to point out the injury concerns. And this is a position where players don't age particularly well. We've seen that in studies over time. The wear and tear of playing second base seems to be pretty significant. Uh, but I do think with Altuve, this comes back to my old boring accumulator I think mm-hmm. I can win this way. I, I don't think he's the first-round talent that he used to be. I don't think anyone really does. But if I draft Jose Altuve around pick 100 and I get a guy that returns value similar to pick 40 or pick 50, that's a pretty good pick in the 7th or 8th round. I, I think he can still do that just with the volume of playing time he's going to get. But Ranky is showing him as like the second or third best. I mean, is that where he's going ADP-wise? Cause... No, he's 10th at the position. Oh. He's the 10th second baseman by ADP. Okay. Well, so I was I'm looking in, at this I'm auction calculator thing. So, you know, that's pointing out, you know, third. And this one says his ADP is 39.7. That's from last year. I don't think they've updated that table. Okay. All right. So friendly, yeah, friendly heads up. If you're in the auction calculator at Fangraphs, I'm sure they'll update it soon because, you know, we're almost into February. But um, the ADPs, I think, are from last season because the Mayhew was in like the 70s or something. And that's that's where he was going a year ago. And now he's in the 30 range. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that, like, you know, his sprint speed is falling off and like his times to first, you know, down by about a quarter of a second. Um, so I think that even though he does rank well for his age, I think that the speed is, is, uh, is going. So yeah, you're looking at more like a handful of steals as opposed to 12 or 15, you know, don't, yeah. don't draft him for steals, draft him for great counting stats, decent power and a good batting average. I think those are the things that Jose Altuve is likely to bring for us here in 2021 once you get outside the top 100 you get to a player that i'm sorry i just don't see it with uh i I know the stat cast numbers are good i know power and speed players are fun he's a great story dylan moore what he did in the shortened season it helped people win leagues i just can't buy in i think there are a lot of ways he can lose playing time i think shed long could push him for playing time i think ty france could push dylan moore for playing time i think Maybe I've said this on our show before. I think Dylan Moore is a lot like this year's Danny Santana. There were things you could talk yourself into with Danny Santana this time last year, but I saw more reasons to be concerned about the bottom falling out with playing time. So I passed on Santana unless he fell like 100 picks, which actually did happen in a draft. Do you have any reason to believe that things might be different with Dylan Moore? Because I see almost the same path coming for him this season. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a weird situation where his outs above average page page has a lot of minuses on it, but it also has a lot on it. You know, <laughs> like he's like a minus 1 at five different positions. <laughs> so, so it's I don't think it's as extreme as Santana, who I think was like more like a minus 5 at three different positions. One of them happened to be center field and the other was first base. You know what I mean? Like very, mm-hmm. very strange combination, but I think you're right also to, to kind of 
harken back to that. Also because like no matter what you think of that stack cast barrel rate, you know, you're going to regress. And I, I think what I've found mostly with launch angle and barrel rate explosions is that you keep about 50% of the games gains that you make. So he had a 6.5% barrel rate in 2019, 13.8 last year. I'd set the over under for his barrel rate at 10, which would mean he's still going to hit the ball hard and he's still going to be a, a slugger, but not on the order of uh, 241, you know, 241 ISO, uh, the bat X is the high projection system on his power, 21 homers, 185 ISO. The problem is that if you combine that with bad defense, um, n- like basically there's only one projection system that says he's comfortably better than league average as a hitter. <laughs> so league average hitter, bad at defense. You start falling down the defensive spectrum, right? Well, he's only going to be a league average hitter. We're not going to play him at first. If he can't be a defender, he can't play him at short. J.P. Crawford's a better defender. So anyway, it's a it's a boom or bust situation. And the auction calculator says Dylan Moore is going to get 560 plate appearances and be above, above average hitter, and so he should be worth six to seven dollars. I get that, but that's not that's not a distribution of outcomes. Uh, you know, it, it reflects a distribution of outcomes, but the real uh, the real choice that you have is Dylan Moore gets 650 plate appearances as a starting second baseman for the Mariners and hits 20 homers and steals 20 bases and is worth $14. Or Dylan Moore gets 350 plate appearances as the backup in a bunch of different places, steals, you know, hits 10 homers and steals 10 bases. Right. And you lag in playing time if that happens. If right, that happens, yeah, and you're, you're missing you out on playing it, time while you're I mean, figuring I'm, it out. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I don't, I, you know, I I like to kind of have these tiers where I'm like the, you know, the guys, uh, the guys with like a slight question mark, you know, uh, darts, you know, that sort of that sort of tiered type of look at it. And he's not in my sort of Altuve, like the thing you would describe with Altuve, the accumulator, like the guy that I just plug in and I'm fine with it, he's not in that group. Mm -hmm. So he has to be back in the bottom group where where it's like, um, I didn't get a great first, second baseman um, or I want to get like a better shot at MI. So I put him in the group with Kingery and Madrigal and Jimenez and maybe Profar and Solak um, and maybe McMahon, that, that group, you know? They're all kind of interesting, but in that group, and I I don't know that I have a good mathematical reason for a statistical reason. I want Nick Solak in that group. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. Well, why. everybody, I think a lot of people have a soft spot for Nick Solak. I mean, there's proof of different tools kind of scattered over parts of multiple seasons yeah. in the big leagues now. So if you consolidate everything, you get a pretty good player. And I think the way they're built. He'll play a lot on that roster as it's currently constructed. So I, I share that interest. I think he's on my list of guys that I like after pick 150. Um, you know, right after Dylan Moore, you got Moose. We talked about him. I think that's a great value pick. Oh you my God, I would take Moose over Moore like a million times. I mean, it's Moose versus El Tuve is a fair toss up. Like I take out El- Moose versus uh, yeah. Muncie is a fair toss up. You 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 could argue Mustakis over Muncie at this point, and it wouldn't be crazy. And there's about a 30 pick gap. 
in ADP. So there is a nice little sweet spot here with a few players that that do make some sense. If you're chasing speed, Tommy Edmond should give you that. Multiple position eligible. Here's my knock on Tommy Edmond. I think we saw the best hitter he'll ever be in the big leagues upon arrival. He had a 123 WRC plus in 2019. 11 homers and 349 plate appearances. I don't think he's going to hit home runs at that rate. He went from a 500 slugging percentage in that debut season to 368 in the shortened season. What we saw in the shortened season isn't necessarily what we get going forward, but I can that's see him being sort of a league average hitter. That's right, that's in line with scouting reports. That's a yeah. nice player if he runs a lot, and he's been efficient as a base dealer, so I don't think that the, the speed is gone. I mean, he's two for six last year as a base dealer. That's not real either. He's going to get you some bags. Do you like him there? Like, is, is he just a, a desperation heave? Like, oh, yeah, I'm, tra- I'm behind on steals, and I know he's going to get me some, even if he's not going to get me much more than a low 20 steals total. Like, how much do you trust the overall skills with Edmund? Do you think he plays enough to be a fine value where he's going right now? Yeah, I think so. You know, you have to think of him in the context of the Cardinals. And, you know, I think, especially with Colton Wong gone, there isn't another player that gives you the ability to make contact, uh, play all over the field, and play that kind of baseball. Just put him up against Matt Carpenter. Matt Carpenter and him are like opposite players, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I have a feeling that they they'll need both. I mean, uh, especially if there's a DH, uh, I think Carpenter will be their DH, and and that'll benefit Edmund greatly. But I think even if they're just uh, trying to make the lineup on a daily basis, even with without the DH, they will find a way to try and get Carpenter and Edmund in there on uh, on most nights, just because they represent such different, like just for lineup diversity almost in like what they can do uh, in the lineup. There's a, that's a fair amount of swing and miss on this Cardinals team. So, you know, having a guy uh, who can get in there, especially with Colton Wong gone, having a guy who can get in there and strike out, you know, 18 to 20% of the time uh, would probably give him like two guys like that. The team's been real quiet this offseason. Cardinals haven't made any noise. The NL Central as a whole has been really pretty embarrassing uh, just in terms of the, the lack of signings and mostly just trading players away to this point. Uh, once you get past Edmund, who's eligible at second, third, short, and the outfield, I mean, that's a nice little nudge to his value. You can play him almost everywhere. Jonathan VR doesn't have a team yet. He's inside the top 150. Imagine if the if the Rockies pull the ultimate Rockies, though, and then sign oh Jonathan VR. How excited we'd all be about him from a fantasy perspective. He'd oh shoot up God. 75 spots at least in ADP. He'd be a fringe top 75 player. Dude, it's going to happen. It's then he signed. That's such an obvious <laughs> thing. I'm not going to oh, speak that into, into We've got reality. Ryan McMahon and Garrett Hampson and Brandon Rodgers. It's a really interesting group of young players. Let's go sign someone old. <laughs> Play him at yeah, their position. Yeah, so I don't really know where Jonathan VR plays. Is he a backup on a contending team, or is he is he the Pirates' proof of, oh, no, we're not going to run a $13 million payroll. We're going to run a $17.5 million payroll and give Jonathan VR $4.5 million to be is our... It- Marquee player for this season. There's a term for that, right? Um, second division starter. Yep, yeah. I, I love him as a second division starter. He just needs a job. I, I, he has flaws. Most of them are defensive flaws. He walks more than you think. He strikes out less than you think. His speed's still reasonably present. When it doesn't matter, when he can just run as much as he wants, even if he's not going to be a league leader in stolen bases. 
he can help you in that category a lot at the price. I just I have no clue who's actually going to sign him. I keep thinking it's going to be a bad team because a good team will want someone that's a better defender because they'll care about defense at the spots that VR can play. I thought for a second, like, Dodgers sign him to be a super... But they have... Chris Taylor is basically similar and better. Yeah, and I, I just think the playing time there would be pretty disappointing. Gavin Lux is still there. I, I think Lux is a guy that I still believe in. If they add two infielders, if they re-sign Turner and add one more, that's obviously horrible for Lux. He could be better than Tony Kemp. Lux could be better than Tony Kemp? No. <laughs> yes, I think he could be better than <laughs> like, Tony Kemp. I hope so. <laughs> Tony, Tony Kemp, I think, uh, it's like has the worst stat cast numbers in baseball <laughs> in terms of hitting. <laughs> Uh, Victor every Robles time I look at them, on I'm line like, one. Yeah, right. But but I, I think that like uh that could be interesting. And Tony Kemp, Jonathan VR kind of help the whole depth. I th- I could actually see the the A's do that kind of thing, don't they? You know, they're like, oh, Jonathan VR is still out there. He only wants four million. Yeah. Sign him. You yeah, know what I mean? He's not bad. When he's good, he's a three to four win player. He's like, probably that's better than exciting. Chad Pinder. <laughs> and could be better probably. than Tony Kemp. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that's that that's my weird my weird desire now because the athletics yeah you, you look at a lot of the second division we're looking for a second division place for him to start look at the second division places or you know at least the bottom 10 um on the depth charts you have the orioles they just they already chose not to <laughs> the mariners who have dylan moore and shed long and i don't know i don't even think it makes that much sense they also have ty france i don't know i don't think that makes sense the Indians would be interesting if they hadn't just gotten Jimenez and Rosario. Um, but they could still be interesting, I guess. The Indians to kind of, no, we're still trying to compete, guys. Um, <laughs> the Marlins? Yeah, I guess the Marlins could sign him. The Marlins could sign him. They had, they had him already, though. Yeah, but, you know, the things happen in the, you know during a season. I mean, they're, they're going in there with John Birdie and Isan Diaz right now. And I would just say mostly woof. (laughs) Mostly woof indeed. Uh, I do think this bottom half of the position is full of guys who are part-time players. We're going to have a handful that rise up and possibly become top 10 second basemen. I I think that's entirely possible. There's a few names that stand out to me as guys that could make the leap. Nick Solak could do it because he can do a little bit of everything. It's okay. (laughs) Andres Jimenez, because he's so young and the playing time should be there now. I think he's got a much better path. I might have been been harsh on Jimenez and Rosario. Like looking at them more, like they could be 15 15 guys. And if they can be 15 15 guys, a couple extra stolen bases or home runs there, and that could be top 10, honestly, right? Like they start all Mm -hmm. year and are 15 15. I still think Lux has a very high ceiling. Yeah, uh, ADP two fifty, no brainer. Stackhouse uh, is not happy with him, but you know it's one of those things. It's he could be he could get bigger and get older, and but also like has he been given like a real go at it? You know what I mean? We've seen this before. We've this this to me is the two version of the Kyle Tucker problem. The projections yeah. don't like him. The limited time we saw him wasn't good. Trust what we saw throughout the upper levels of the minor leagues. We said this going into draft season last year. Players don't really do what Gavin Lux did at AAA at that age. That doesn't mm-hmm. usually happen. A 188 WRC plus over 
even a third of a season at AAA, you just don't find After that three for a guy straight who's stops with a one forty seven exactly WRC plus. So yeah, yeah, he yeah he. he it's almost like a conventional projections play at this point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the bad mm-hmm. X doesn't like him. The bad X has the smallest uh, ISO on him, but I just don't think that he's been given, you know, the full run here. And I think something like what zips has down for him is totally possible. Two forty nine batting average, 24 homers, uh, nine stolen bases. Yeah. And I wonder if, if the Dodgers would give him more green lights than we're expecting. Because I think they, speed's they a big part of his game. Oh, and L, oh, you mean green lights of that? I mean, we're just wanting the Dodgers to kind of give him the job. Well, we are, because if you talk about this cluster around him, you know, Chris Taylor, nice player, plays all over, maybe even a little underrated in the broader sense. David Fletcher is solid. Maybe he's more similar to uh, Jeff McNeil than McNeil is to DJ LeMayhew, but that's a that's an onion to peel in the future, I think. Uh, Ryan McMahon, like, is it ever really going to happen? Like, stat cast numbers are good, results... Not very good. I, I kind of like McMahon where he's going, so that's a lukewarm endorsement of him. Lux is the one guy you look at in this range. You go, that dude could be a star. That, could be that guy really... could be an early rounder next year, so it's a no-brainer pick for me in that but range. But where's his ADP? Because people, that kind of player, I feel like, just gets momentum going, you know, and people declare them as their sleeper at second base, and then he just then all of a sudden... You're like people are choosing between Mustakas and Lux, and you're just like, no, 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 no. Rain it. 250 is the ADP right now. Well, see, the earliest, right. the earliest 167. If you, if the most he'd probably shoot up in the ADP would be to where he was last year. I mean, 100 picks is not out of the question. It's not likely, but it's possible. That would put him ahead of Nick Solak. That put him a little ahead of Jake Cronenworth. It put him right behind Jonathan VR. Well, see, that's all right. Yeah. It's not that hard because the guys in front of them aren't that good. Yeah, that's right. that's yeah. what it is. So if, if we get any sort of confirmation from the Dodgers that they trust Gavin Lux, that, oh, Gavin Lux has been just tearing it up in Kenosha this winter. He looks great. He's ready to come in and take this job. We're only going to bring Turner back. We're going to move Muncie around a little bit. Okay, great. That that all kind of works. Like I, I was interested in Lux 80, 90 picks earlier this time last year. I'm absolutely still interested in him where he's going right now. So if if you disagree with me, great. Leave him for me. But I, I just think there's a lot there to still like, and this is a range where there's not a lot to get excited about. I think John Birdie said it before, nice story, not necessarily a very bright future in terms of fantasy value for us outside of the occasional cheap steals. What do you think of Mauricio Dubon? The forecaster box on him was great. It pointed to an upside, I think, of a 2020 player. And I'm actually surprised that as everyone's read that, he hasn't jumped up in price yet. So I think he's another one of these guys after pick 200 who could pick up some helium. He's got multiple spots he can play, eligible at second, short, and in the outfield. A lot of ways it can come together. I don't even know if he's necessarily a above-average real-life hitter, but he might do everything we want in our game with excess playing time for this range. And I think that's what makes Mauricio Dubon appealing to me. Dude, dude, I got a name for you. It's almost perfect. Uh, like pretty much perfect. Tommy Edmond. There's your eat this, not that. There's your there's your guy. <laughs> exactly. like if, you, if you want a reason not to pay the premium for Tommy Edmond, his name is Mauricio Dubon, and he'll play every day for the Giants this season. Yeah, he may not steal as many bases, but uh, Dubon stole 38 in 2017. Um, so, you know, he's got some steals in there. 
Um, and he's likely to be used in situations where, like, if he didn't start the game, he's probably their best pinch runner. Yep. So you could find yourself with some bonus steals. Um, I generally hew closer to uh, wanting something out of the stat cast numbers <laughs> uh, before I like someone. But, you know, Edmund doesn't have great stat cast numbers. Um, I've owned Tony Kemp in leagues before. So uh, sometimes you it's a just a, que- a question of, of cost and, and benefit. And um, I don't see league average power from Dubon. Um, he doesn't have league average barrel rate. He didn't. There's a couple pop-ups in his minor league track record, but usually the ISOs looked like what Edmund was putting up. So I'm much more comfortable saying 15-15 uh, as like remarkably doable. Uh, I think that the the way that that uh, that team shakes down right now, I mean, obviously there could be some changes in the future, um, but um, I think he could be the the center fielder. And if I'll he just it. sort of takes center field, uh, then uh, then you've got your fifteen fifteen for for super cheap. Real quick, since this is the longest rates and barrels that we've ever recorded, I think maybe the one with the holiday cookies ended up being longer. The after three hundred guys, so Dubon going around two eighty. You get even further down the list. A couple guys that I think are interesting. Scott Kingery, who had one of the really awful COVID seasons, was having trouble getting two consecutive negative tests, lost a bunch of time in camp, didn't feel good, just all all of those things. And this came up over the weekend. Our friend Glenn Colton put out a tweet. How much do we care about information like that, soft information about the lack of video or how much a player was impacted by X, Y, or Z in the shortened season? It really is a case-by-case basis. I think a lot of times we can trick ourselves into believing things that we shouldn't believe. But I'm just looking at the 2019 numbers from Scott Kingery. We're looking for cheap power and speed from a guy who can play all over and has shown that there's something there. The skill set we just described with Dubone, more power from Kingery, 19 home runs. Twice the barrel rate for his career. as, as Twice Dubon. the barrel rate an efficient base dealer and a more hitter friendly park too. So yeah, there are flaws. He strikes out almost 30% of the time, just a shade under that so far. doesn't walk a ton, but he does a lot of things well, and he's going to find some playing time. So I, I, I think it's easy to just justify Kingery based on past track record and where he's going right now. You could not even tell me why he wasn't good in 2020. And I'd just say that's a profile worth going after. But if you want to put the, the sauce yeah. on it, you know, tell me what happened in 2020, and that's another little nudge. Yeah. That's the guarantee on the box of brake pads in Tommy Boy. That's but, what it is. But you could take the name off of this and 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 poop in a box. You could take the name off of this and uh, and just be like, oh, look at this guy who's uh, almost a 2020 player in 2019 and 500 plate appearances, and then wow, you know, 124 plate appearances are just that was a bad year. I think if you just took the name off, it'd be like, yeah, I'd be interested in that player. Um, and you know, projected bounce backs are an issue if you're depending on them from a 33 to 35 year old. That's something that Jeff Zimmerman showed. Kingery's 26. Mm-hmm. I think there's enough of a track record here. The stat cast numbers are good. He did drop off in max EV last year, but it was only 79 by the ball events. 
And I think that's where you can throw in some soft information and say, plus COVID. You know, and the COVID really hurt some people more than others. I, you know, one player I talked to, you know, wasn't able to get going 100% on the bike until six weeks after he uh, got his initial COVID diagnosis. So, you know, I don't know that necessarily top-end cardio is the most important skill for a baseball player, but at the same time, that does speak something to how, like, how well could you be training if you can't even do the top-end cardio, you know? So, um, I, I... It's more of like a last little piece, like you're saying, I think. I, I think that Kingery's case, his Fangraphs page, make, makes it for him, pretty much. Yeah, I, I don't think... I don't think you have to add anything to it, but you can. It's there if you if you want the the narrative to uh, to put on there, which might be more than narrative based on how things progress for him. Uh, but, Starling Castro, just based on time and where he hits in the lineup. Free. Yeah, was he coming out as a surfing? middle infielder? He had a wrist injury, I believe, at the end of the year. So okay, so but I think maybe that he's he he projects as slightly comparable to Nick Madrigal. And you know that uh, Nick Magic will get picked ahead of uh, Starlin Castro, I feel like, in most leagues. And that's because we're talking about oatmeal here. Starlin Castro is oatmeal, I think, at this point. Uh, just a guy who, uh, if he gets the full playing time, should hit like 280 and hit 20 homers type deal. Um, Nick Madrigal off, like obviously has more ceiling, but he's also coming off a worse surgery in a shoulder surgery versus... Um, uh, Stalin Castro's wrist surgery, which I think even the wrist surgery was performed earlier than uh, the shoulder surgery for Nick Madrigal. So um, I'm I'm fairly out on Nick Madrigal, um, and I like Stalin Castro as like an NL only uh, late 15 team MI play for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll take him in that exact spot, late late rounder for 15 teamers. You know, plenty of value going to hit in a nice spot in that lineup. The top six in the Nats lineup should be good enough for those counting stats to come out pretty nice as well. And health-wise, he wanted to play winter ball. Starling Castro wanted to play winter ball. The Nats told him to rest and prepare for spring training. So I don't think he's going Probably to be significantly limited once we get to uh, the start of spring and training. They, they've shown that they don't that trust, they don't trust uh, Carter Keyboom. So in terms of... <laughs> they really don't. You know, <laughs> in terms of what you're doing... Um, on a depth chart, I think that, you know, even you could even put Kibum in and Castro starts, um, or if you trust Luis Garcia, I think you, you can have a, a depth chart where Luis Garcia, Luis Garcia and Starlin Castro are both starting. Um, I'm not that into Luis Garcia. I think he's a good real life player, but I'm not sure he's ever going to be more than an MI sort of filler and the only league sort of player for us, uh, barring some pretty massive growth on the offensive side. I, just, I get like Nicky Lopez without the stolen bases vibes, dude. And that is not <sighs> what you want. That's not good at all. <laughs> it's definitely not <laughs> what you want. Uh, only other interesting name for me, I mean, a couple guys need jobs. Cesar Hernandez, Colton Wong, they're fine if they end up playing somewhere. Scope, I think cheap power can still be something in his profile if he ends up landing a spot to play. I'm not giving up on Luis Urias. Wrist injury in spring training 1.0. It might have been a bad trade. It might have been a horrible trade. Yeah, but eligible at three positions. The Brewers are just dragging their heels upgrading that roster. There's not a lot of competition for Urias to even just be the starting third baseman. Orlando Arcia could fall into a utility role, and Urias could be the starting shortstop. We could have universal DH, and 
Uh, if they don't keep Vogelbach, Keston Hira could DH a lot, and you could see Urias at second. You could have stopped all... at Arcia, dude. Arcia is an overcomable obstacle, dude. There, there are so many paths for Urias, yeah. and maybe, maybe we're going to be talking about this as a really bad Brewers trade a year from now. It's already kind of teetering on the brink, but give him one more chance. Injuries yeah. plus COVID cost him time last year. You're talking about second pagers, you know, uh, on Fangraphs, uh, the defaults to 30. Second pagers. So you, I'm on the second page here. When you're talking second page, I think you can, uh, I think you can pick any reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think you can pick any reason be like David Fletcher. I like him because he makes a ton of contact and plays all over. Boom. He's a second pager, but that's a good enough reason to like him. I think. Gavin Lux is the second pager, but he has a 494 uh, plate appearance projection, and um, you know the bad X is lower on him because of st- Statcast stuff. So, uh, you know, if you like him for, for for more conventional reasons or playing time reasons, love him. Luis Rios, you made a good uh, thing for him. Tommy Listella, I think, is a David Fletcher esque argument. Um, you know, could play for me in a couple of different places. Makes a lot of contact. Uh, should have a good batting average and 18 to 24 homers type deal, right? Um, you know, Michael Chavis, I, I get why people, um, are tired of him. Um, and it really seems like the Red Sox just keep acquiring players that play his positions. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> um, TK's arrival is not good for Michael Chavis. It's not, it's not at all. Um, the bad X is uh, the bat. The bad X is the, the highest on him. Say he could hit 236 with 300 OBP um, and a 421 slugging. That's not very exciting. That would be below average. His defense is not really above average. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I do know that when he debuted, <laughs> he had good max EV. He had a good barrel rate. If he gets back to those numbers, um, I think he could slug his way into part of the solution at first base where Bobby D- Bobby Dalbeck uh, also strikes out a lot or in the outfield where they just frankly don't have a lot of players, you know, so or could trade away Benintendi and open up some time for Chavis to, to get there. So um, it wasn't the most impassioned plea, uh, but what I'm saying is on the second page, uh, the barrier for entry is lower. So um Anybody else on the second page that's standing out for you? Do you, you like Ty France at all? I kind of like France a little bit. I think they're going to play him. I mean, I think with the DH spot in the AL, of course, he's much more likely to play with the Mariners than he ever was with the Padres. And what he did in the upper levels of the minor leagues is interesting regardless of age. So uh, I think in AL-only leagues especially, he's a good 3 to $5 guy late if you can get him at that price. Maybe a more of a wait and see in most mixed leagues outside of drafted holds. I think the young players, the prospects and former prospects, the position, this cluster of Jazz Chisholm, Brendan Rodgers, I'm not ready to give up on him yet until the Rockies do something stupid and block him again. I still think there's something there with him. He's had a ton of injuries, just a matter of staying healthy. If he just stays healthy, he's free. He's your last pick in a mixed league, and he might end up being mm-hmm. a good enough player to be a top 15 second baseman this year. That's not saying a whole lot given the quality of the position and Vidal Brujan might not be far away from contributing but uh, I think he's tricky in a mixed league as well unless we get a trade if Brandon Lau gets traded or one of the outfielders gets traded we're told that Lau is going to play more in the outfield we kind of just need to see a path for Brujan before stashing him away I think he's a very interesting player but kind of blocked for now and, and you never know the Rays seem to like you know you know either they 
you know, Nate Lowe, like think of Nate Lowe and Randy Arrazzarena, right? They acquired, they acquired Randy Arrazzarena. They had Nate Lowe and people, some people love Nate Lowe. Some people really love Randy Arrazzarena. They go into the season. You pretty much don't think Randy Arrazzarena is going to play this year in 2020 because, you know, they have a bunch of outfielders and, you know, they could use Nate Lowe and push somebody into the outfield. You know what I mean? Like it just didn't seem like it. And then, oh, look, Randy Arrazzarena comes up and plays every day. And Nate Lowe gets traded away. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So Bruhan, you just don't know which of the two he's going to be. And it's not that easy to kind of, oh, he hits the ball hard and they value this. So it's, you know, Bruhan's going to be in there. Um, you know, sometimes they play a guy like Joey Wendell, who decidedly does not hit the ball hard. <laughs> you know? uh, maybe he could take over for Joey Wendell because Joey Wendell is hurt or uh, DFA'd or whatever. Um, so yeah, I like Ruhan, but I, I can't tell you what he'll do in 2020. In fact, I would assume he doesn't do much. Yeah. For now, I'm looking at him as a, a 2022 sort of guy. We'll be excited about maybe in that 250 range, barring an unforeseen change in circumstances. Anybody else that we didn't get to that you want to throw out there before we sign off? This has to be the record. We're closing in on 90 minutes of this episode. It's the Oregon trail episode of rates and barrels. Well, uh, I mean, I guess Christian Arroyo, uh, this is his pooper get off the potty time. And uh, he has an opportunity there uh, because they've still got options on Jimenez and Rosario. So uh, this spring training will be huge for him. And, you know, he does have the ability to, if he shows you know, the upper end of his power, uh, to be an above league average bat because he, he can make decent contact. So. Christian Arroyo, uh, wait for breathless spring updates before you put him on any boards, but uh, there there could be something there. There is some opportunity. The late, late options to consider. I think one of them for me is for draft and hold and for ale only, Aledmiz Diaz. I think there's still a little something there. Uh, he can play enough spots. He'll become a, a multi-position contributor. I think that makes him somewhat appealing for very deep leagues. Not a guy that's going to win your league for you, but a nice depth pick that you'll be happy about later on in those ultra-deep leagues. Uh, As always, never ford the river. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can (laughs) leave us a nice rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. We really appreciate that. If you'd like to check out all the great content we have on The Athletic, you can sign up for $3.99 a month to start at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Be sure to do that. You can find us on Twitter. He's at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>